Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of Associated, the podcast for making venture capital more accessible. I'm here with Francesca. Hi Petra, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, pretty good, thanks. Are you Um, still enjoying the countryside? I am, I'm still enjoying the countryside. Had a bit of a play around with tennis with my family today and my sister is now doing what I think quite a lot of people are doing at the moment, which is moving out of London and into the countryside. Yeah. um, Yeah. Because they've fallen in love with the idea of country living. Um, I don't know whether any of your friends are doing that. I think temporarily a lot of them have rented like six months, eight months cottages, but nothing permanent. I think some might go for a year and then come back, but definitely seeing some trends there. And Petra, should we go on to rather than discussing countryside life? uh, Our wonderful guest. Yes, of course. We're we're so excited and super happy to have our lovely guest, Magda Lukashevich, who is at Balderton. Hi, Magda. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm also on the on the countryside, so I'm joining the country club here. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the countryside, not in the UK. You're somewhere else, right? Exactly. I'm in Sweden right now. I'm normally based in London, but decided to to go to Sweden to be closer with with the family during these times. And also I have a really nice forest outside my window, so it's nice for morning walks and at least for me personally, working from home is super super efficient. I'm an easily distracted person. So being in a room with four walls, no colleagues, is, uh, <laughs> is maybe not as fun, but it's really good for my productivity. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because so far with everyone that we have interviewed, they've seemed to really be enjoying working from home. And as you said, they have found it to be more efficient um, in their ability to work. Uh, so it's quite interesting how you've had the opportunity to experience it probably is this the first time you've worked from home uh yeah properly yes I mean in venture I think it's a industry that is quite flexible so of course like occasionally I have worked from home or from hotel rooms or airports or (laughs) god knows what um (laughs) but it's the first time I'm working from home for a longer period of time and and I can't say it's been like a straight line to happiness and I'm the person that gets energy from meeting other people and uh, not being able to do that is of course a little bit sad but but yeah I mean other than that I'm personally enjoying it but I do feel bad for either people that are new in a job and have to onboard remotely I think that's really hard and then I feel bad for founders especially early stage founders where personal connection really matters I would say like the less traction you have the more the person matters of course the founder always matters but I think in particular if you're doing an early bet and there isn't any numbers then all the attention is going to be on the person and not being able to have that personal connection obviously makes it a little bit harder yeah no absolutely and you've given us a few clues of the kind of stages Balderton invests in but it would be great for our listeners if you gave us a bit of an overview of Balderton yeah of course so a few words about Balderton is uh, I often say that it's an old fund that invests in new companies <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's true we were founded uh, 20 years ago when I was eight years old and we're then a part of Benchmark uh, until 2007 
So while we don't have any formal ties with them, a part of our culture and setup has some similarities. Uh, for example, the equal partnership uh, that we have. And today, our strategy is more centered around Europe and European founders or startups. So either European founders outside of Europe or European-born companies. In terms of stage, most of our investments are uh, around Series A, although we occasionally go a little bit earlier or a little bit later. So stage-wise, most often what we're looking for is a clear product market fit. We do also have a secondary fund for a little later stage. And in terms of sectors, so we are sector agnostic as a fund, and most of the companies that we invest in are in one way or another software-related or software-enabled. But there is roughly 100 of them in our portfolio because it's, uh, it's, it's quite big over the last years. And it's quite a long history with number of companies we've invested in. And yeah, we raised a new fund in the end of uh, last year, $400 million. So we have some fairly fresh capital to, to deploy in, in Europe. And, and in terms of how you guys are split up internally, can you tell us more about that? Mm-hmm. How do you share the workload? Yeah. So, I mean, we're aiming to cover the whole of Europe, more or less. And uh, and most of the companies are Series A, as I mentioned. We have uh, eight partners in the primary investing team, and uh, seven of them are, are voting, and 17 people in the, in the investment team in total. So I would say on the... On the partner side, many of the partners have built own companies uh, in the past so or have some operational experience. So they will naturally have a little bit more of sector preference. And of course, there are many cases where like the lines are quite blurry. And on the non-partner side, we're responsible for geos. And for me, that's Nordics is primary, and I spend some of my time in Baltics and Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, And then also we do certain sectors that we are uh, excited about or we're building a thesis around or we have some natural connections or think something is, is particularly exciting. For me personally, I have a little bit of background in, in health and quite interested in food. Uh, both from a work and personal side, so so these are uh, these are two areas that I uh, I really enjoy spending time on. I'm really interested on your personal side of food. And <laughs> so uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, so I'm quite interested in chocolates. Uh, yes, and sometimes I do uh, chocolate tastings. It's uh, recently it's mainly been for for friends, but I used to have it as a side job at uh, at university. So <laughs> that was so quite cool. fun. That's so <laughs> reading cool. during the days and tasting chocolate in the evenings. And that's so cool, Petra. If you ever want me to taste any chocolate at your house, do let me know. <laughs> yes. I'm available. <laughs> it was a cool side job to have. How did you even get in touch with a chocolate tasting like organization? <laughs> no, so this is a long story, but um, and, and it, it also sort of like touches a little bit of my background. But but in Sweden, you do a sort of like a couple of weeks internship when you're like 14 or 15. 
because you're basically like supposed to get some work experience. And uh, I wanted to do my uh, internship in the chocolate store. So that was like the first time I, I like, got in touch with premium chocolate. And basically on the first day of that internship, they told me that like, okay, if I work really hard, like really, really hard, maybe I could get a job. Uh, and for me to get a job at that age, that was like, something like I would love to do on weekends for example so yeah, I saw it as a, as a great opportunity and then I got to taste like as much chocolate as I wanted so uh, I was like I was almost feeling ill every day after <laughs> working really hard so much chocolate <laughs> and and they were really pushy because they, they wanted me to know as much as possible about the chocolate because it's very hard to sell chocolate if you don't know what you're selling mm. um so basically, it was um, it was a highly demanding job in terms of like how much chocolate can you consume. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was like that was, that was a little bit where it started, and then I moved from Stockholm to south of Sweden to study in Lund and joined um, another candy slash uh, chocolate store um, where I worked on evenings and weekends and uh, continued with with chocolate tasting. And now I. I don't have as much time, so <laughs> I do it most, most, mostly for fun. But you did a bunch of stuff, I'm assuming, in between your life in chocolate and now life at Balderton. I'm assuming yeah. <laughs> from, from, from tasting to venture. Um, so, so what happened in, in those in-between years? Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, so I mean, a short introduction is... Um, uh, I'm born and raised in Sweden uh, by Polish parents, so I'm a little bit of both. I grew up in a suburb of Stockholm, uh, so I have a classic immigrant background story with both parents working very hard to establish themselves in a new country. And I was fortunate to realize from an early age that if I worked hard, I would have access to good education. And in Sweden, that's actually like what really matters. The, the social and school system is quite straightforward from that perspective. And when I was 15 or 16, I became friends with another guy in school and he had a similar background to myself. And we talked a lot about politics and I decided to join the organization in, in politics together with him. We did it together. And there, I mean, it was sort of like a new world that opened to me. I saw a lot of young, inspiring people that had strong voices, inspiring stories, highly motivated to change. So it was a little bit of a spark that I saw there. And uh, we were both uh, passionate and, and did quite well. And I actually became the youngest politician in Sweden. So 11 days after my 18th birthday, I was elected to the city council uh, where I lived. And at the same time, I also started working uh, part-time for Klarna which was then a very small startup. So I think the team was maybe 40, 40, 50 people or so, or for sure not more than that uh, when, I, when I first joined. And uh, it was a long internship that I had under three years where I would be coming back and going back to school and coming back and going back to school. And, and every time I came back, also later when I started working there part-time, uh, like the company just grew and grew. And, and to me, it was, it was my first office job. So I thought, I sort of thought that was normal. Uh, or I, I didn't really, but you still, you know, you, you get used to the fact that the team is like more than doubling each year. And, and I got really inspired 
And uh, I, I founded a marketplace for services with a friend from politics. It never took, uh, but it was a good experience. And so I continued studying. And I wasn't quite sure exactly what I wanted to do after, but I wanted to learn a lot in a short time. And I wasn't scared of, of working hard and I wanted to build out my international network. Uh, I basically didn't know any people outside of Sweden and maybe my Polish family. So what I did was to apply for an internship at Goldman uh, in London in banking. And I got the job, I joined them, learned a lot about myself, but also how the corporate and banking world works. When I was there, I mainly worked with pharma, food and consumer companies. Uh, and I loved the sectors, but I wasn't as excited about uh, slow moving, large corporates that were growing 2% uh, per year. When I was there, I, I mean, I really realized that I wanted to do something that, that is a little bit more faster, that is a little bit more innovative. And at that time, uh, Boulderton reached out. And the rest is history. It's been two years now. Great. Well, there's, there's so many things I want to touch on there. With your work with Klarna, I recall offline that you spoke about how Sweden has this program which encourages young students to learn about entrepreneurship. Is that how you got the job at Klarna? Exactly, exactly. Uh, it was in the, I don't know, is it the upper secondary school, like when between year 15 or 18. So yeah, so we had, uh, I think it was two months where we would spend with the same company over the period of time. And it was focused on understanding entrepreneurship and it was supposed to inspire people to, to either like build out businesses themselves and get a little bit of a foot inside the door. So that was the reason I got in touch with Klarna and I learned a lot about payments, debt collection. And actually, I mean, something I recall when I was on my first week there and um, I was sitting in Sebastian, the, one of the founders of Klarna in his office, and he was telling me the story when they were three guys and missed a boat from uh, Australia and started to think of, of what they do and, and that's how, how they founded Klarna. And also he told me about how uh, difficult it was for them to raise uh, their first money. And, and in the end, they, they got in touch with uh, with, a, with an angel investor but that wasn't that wasn't clear at all and and it's something that I often think in the back of my mind when I speak with the new founders. Yeah I think that's such a phenomenal thing that Sweden has put in place I, that's not anything like what's in place in the UK it's very much like with my university experience and school experience there was nothing really along the lines of like how to be an entrepreneur or that entrepreneurship was a an available option how, how about you Petra did you have anything in your schooling system like that no I don't think it was so much around entrepreneurship but they did encourage like a lot of independent thought like I, I went to a very like holistic type of school and to graduate we had to do a certain number of like community service hours we had to do a number of like of, of creative hours so it wasn't as direct as perhaps, you know, what you've been talking about, Magda, but it was more about the development of like raw skills that then led to, you know, entrepreneurship. And, and a number of people from this school have founded, um, you know, companies, Gojek, which is one of the 
um, I think Indonesian Deca Corns was founded by guys in my senior year. So I think, I, I don't think it was as direct for sure. So I think it's a very unique and important, you know, thing to, to learn, definitely. I can say it for me it was a great experience. It's not something that all schools have, so, but yeah, we had it, and and I think that was it was very meaningful for for a lot of the people. Obviously, it really depends on where you end up. Like, I mean, I didn't know that that Klarna will become a multi-billion business when I joined them, but I think at that age, regardless what you do, you get great experience and exposure. And who doesn't want to have? Uh, you know, uh, an, an extra job that you can go to after school or during weekends. I think that's that's just a great way to build your independence early. That's super cool. And you were the youngest politician at the same time, so exceptionally busy and studying. But I'm curious about being a young politician what was that like because I'm not sure what it's like in Sweden but in the UK like in my head how I've seen politicians is they're like 50 plus um yeah so what was that like? <laughs> um, yeah I mean I think uh, that's to a certain extent true in Sweden as well and I mean, first, I also had really good people around me that were really inspiring and that were also helping me and pushing me. And when I was like, no, I can't do it. Like, I don't know so much. I, I cannot be a politician. They would really help me build confidence. And how I thought about it is that, yeah, of course. I mean, someone that is 18 years old will not know everything that someone that is well-educated or has lived through life and just have a, a certain life experience at 40 or 50 or 60. But, but to me, that doesn't matter because I think in good parties are a representation of the people for which they are, I mean, elect for and deciding for. And, and and I think it's important to have different perspectives. So while I didn't have the same work experience or life experience as many other people had, I mean, they had that and they could stand for that. And I had something different and I, I, could, I could represent a, a big part of the population that was a younger group and represent... Uh, their thoughts and needs in a in a different way um but of course i mean there were a lot of people that were writing i mean really bad things about me online and uh, and that was the first time that i felt uh, i felt really uh, really exposed because obviously being such a young politician it also gives you some media attention and uh, just because you are the youngest uh, or one of the youngest so there weren't only pros but i was still very grateful for the position of trust that that I achieved uh, and that I got from people around me, and uh, and it's something that has given me um, a lot of perspectives and and a really good experience. Awesome! It's such a unique experience. I, normally, I would just assume that if you start out in politics, you kind of like follow that trajectory, and you know you work your way up in government. What what made you decide? Okay, this is actually not the route that I want to take. For me, it was really important to not be one of the politicians that is just born and raised in a party and doesn't have 
real time to think independently. When you are young, you get very affected by what other people think. And 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 looking back, I can see that as well. Like I would read like three books in one topic and I would feel that okay, this is how I think. And then I would read three other books sort of slightly contradicting at least some of the thoughts, then I would be like, oh, these are really good points too. Um, and uh, so I didn't feel fully comfortable in the in the setup of, um, I mean, committing to a party program at that that age. And, uh, and also I think good politicians are doing politics for a, for a period of time. Uh, they want to achieve something and uh, they go into politics, they do that. And then uh, they do something else and maybe they go back into politics. I don't think politics is something that you should aim to do at a young age and then stay forever. So maybe, maybe you will see me in politics in the future. Who knows? Has that experience given you like a skill set that you're using now in venture? Um, probably, yes. I did some uh, public speaking when I was in politics um and that is something that i mean it's definitely helping if you're if you're at a conference or but also what you were saying about reading books thinking that you know everything then reading something else and then changing your mind i mean correct me if i'm wrong but that is very much what you do on a day-to-day basis in venture capital is that you're at the cutting edge of certain trends and certain themes and you're gathering information to opinion of the landscape of the business and how it fits within that and I think that is something that you were kind of applying to your own opinions in politics right yeah yeah I mean 100% in many investment cases it's not 100% straightforward it's always around uh, weighting the pros and the cons to get to, to an investment decision and in some cases the pros and the cons are very clear and it's about uh, weighting them against each other. And in other cases, it's more a discovery process. The more time you spend with, with the company, uh, the more things you come up with uh, and the more diligence you do, the more depth you have. I would also say that politics is, uh, is a tough industry. You will have a lot of people that have uh, opinions on what to do or what is the right thing to do. And you really need to stand up for yourself and for your opinions. And, and I mean, at least the politicians that I respect the most are the ones that, I mean, they stand up for their opinions, but they are also able to reevaluate what they think. And I think that is something that is really important in, in venture too. Got it. Yeah, I know. I think that makes a lot of sense. Like the the openness to being proven wrong or like accepting that you'll be proven wrong or you might be wrong is, a, is I think, an important just life skill in, in, in general and especially in venture too. And, and so in between, so the politicking and then VC. So you were at Goldman and then you left Goldman to Balderton. What kind of led you to leave and then decide to do, okay, yeah, VC is definitely the next step for me. Yeah. So, so for me, it was, it wasn't so much about leaving. It was almost like reconnecting with my past or something that I was really intrigued by 
a couple of years back. So it felt very, very natural. I think it was something that built up over time. I think, and I think that's a, that's a typical example of maybe, I mean, not always following your heart to 100%. I mean, I, I wanted to go to Goldman because I wanted to get the skill set that I knew I would need in my my life in the future. I wanted to build out an, an international network. I wanted to learn more about how do you really analyze a company? How do you IPO a company? What is a smart decision with like who to merge and at which price does it make sense? What are the different financial risks? But it was never a part of my 10-year plan to stay and, and do that forever. I, I never really felt like a banker. I was enjoying the job and, and working with with a number of people there. I have some of my best friends from their both peers and uh, and seniors. But I felt I wanted to do something else. I wanted to do something a little bit more entrepreneurial. I don't think I loved being a part of a huge organization. I mean, that's that's understandable. And and just for the founder listeners uh, that will yes. to your episode, you mentioned these are all the sort of things that you learned at, at uh, Goldman of how to value the company, when it makes sense to IPO or to merge. Are those the sort of things that you help your portfolio with? And is that the sort of questions you tend to quiz the founders when you're doing due diligence? I mean, yes and no. We are, I mean, the good thing is that I'm surrounded by really smart and highly qualified people from the team as well that also have a lot of financial experience. So I wouldn't say I personally spend a lot of time on that. I would say most active when it comes to the early investment stages. So a lot, of course, on the sourcing side. And then I get involved in a few selected portfolio companies where I either have some kind of connection to the team or to the startup, or I have been a part of that since the beginning. And because I've only been in venture two years, I haven't worked on that many sales or, or IPOs uh, from, from the venture portfolio yet. Of course, hoping that to come in the future. Uh, but I think it's definitely something that is important to think about as a founder. I think it's important to have a good answer on these questions. For example, like different paths one would take, what the strategics are doing and how such an environment could play out in the future. However, I think if you are that early that you barely have a product and you are just looking to get your first customers, having your mind too focused on the exit, I'm not sure if that's, that's a great focus. No, that, that makes sense. And, and you mentioned that you do work with a few portfolio companies at the moment. How do you help your portfolio companies that you're currently working with? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, for example, like I'm working a lot with Voy, uh, one of the mobility startups, the e-scooter company that we have that we have invested in. And in many cases, it could be around making introductions to good people. It can be hiring related, can be uh, connecting founders to to other founders that I have I have spoken with. I mean, the good thing with venture is that you get exposed to a lot of people, and being able to to use that is a, is a very clear and easy value add. Uh, it could be helping with uh, feedback from an investor perspective, but um, most of the, I mean, 
help that I personally in the role of an associate do is mainly on an ad hoc basis. And a lot of that is is with running processes internally uh, rather than very external facing. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I think you're right. I think venture is probably one of the very few jobs where you just meet so many people and you try and like connect the dots all the time. And yeah, I think that's a really cool part of the job is just being able to fit puzzle pieces together that are mutually beneficial and and hopefully help grow the company. And in terms of when you're screening and, and meeting founders, what are some of the things that you really look for? Yeah, so I mean, this is a good question because people will definitely have different answers and preferences. I think something really important is, I mean, obsession in a good way with whatever is being built. Because building a company is obviously something really, really hard and really difficult. And I know that from quite limited but still personal experience. My partner is a founder and the founders that that I know obviously will have one face towards the investors, but then another face if you're friends with them. So, I mean, in, in that context, I think it's really important to to be truly passionate about what you're building. And uh, and then I'm looking for, for good people. Uh, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the things that you can do with tech also can have a harmful effect on people, especially when it comes to handling data, handling personal data, um, where do you draw the line between like using people's data to make more personalized experiences versus when are you turning that against people? And in terms of how you approach finding businesses, do you sort of identify a sector that you think is really exciting and then go into that sector and try and identify some of the up and coming startups mm-hmm. um, within there? What's your approach? Um, so I would say it's mixed. I try to be a little bit structured when it comes to my sourcing. So obviously I'm using a lot of tools. I mean, I try to be accessible for founders to reach out to me as well. I like I, I almost had pitch decks sent to me on Instagram. And I, I think that's really important. I put a little bit of pride in that, that I think it's easy to reach out to me too. So it's not only about me finding the companies, but also being accessible. So that's one point that I think is important to make, especially in VC and especially even the challenges that are in VC, such as like, who are we investing in? And of course, the other thing is, is like, what are, what, which interesting themes are there and what industry interests uh, do I have? And I mentioned a little bit before that I'm quite interested in health and food. And I mean, one of the observations I did quite early was that in health, I mean, obviously alcohol is a, is a big negative impact, at least on our uh, physical health. I think on, on mental, it's, it's debatable. Uh, it can be a boost, but <laughs> it can also be really bad if you get too much. Uh, I find it very that. binary. It's great. Exactly. <laughs> but something that I, I noticed was that more and more people are seeking alternatives to drinking. They still want to socialize, but they don't necessarily want the the pressure of, of drinking. It can be because they are working out and committed to their health and don't want to ruin that with, with a lot of drinks. And it's not the case as it has been in the past that it's basically only like pregnant women or people that are on medication or are not drinking of religious views. You 
don't really need to have an excuse for not doing that. And it's becoming a little bit more of a choice that you make. And there are different drivers for, for different age groups. One interesting thing is that the younger generation or Gen Z is drinking much less than, for example, millennials. And I was quite interested to hear, like, what are the underlying reasons for that? And that popped up in many interviews is that, like, because younger people have older lives exposed on social media, they are also conscious about losing control and what effect that will have um, from from a social perspective. I think that that's quite quite interesting, like how social media is shape our habits. So it wasn't only because of health reasons, but it also had a, a social effect of not losing control in, in public, which I think is quite interesting. So that was something that I spent a little bit of time on end of last year. For example, non-alcoholic beer is one of the quickest growing categories. And there are uh, many interesting questions you could ask. For example, like, will you mimic the old taste of alcohol? A number of startups, for example, Seedip, that I guess is the most established one, is, uh, is trying to, to mimic gin. And is that the, the right way to go? Do people really want something that tastes exactly like, like alcohol? Or will they want something that you can drink slowly that could have a completely different taste and uh, how do you distribute i mean the distributors in the in the industry are very very powerful and uh, and have a big impact on your success you might have an amazing product but if you don't have the right deals or the right networks it will be really really hard uh, for you to get to get uh, consumers attention uh, so that was uh, one of the areas that i looked into um, a little bit deeper and then looking into gaming quite a bit there are a number of quite successful gaming startups coming out of the nordics Voltron have also invested in games quite a bit me being like a typical uh, female stereotype saying that i mean i don't necessarily identify myself a lot as a gamer so i have more of a maybe metrics driven approach to, to many of the gaming startups. But I mean, something that I really reacted to was that I was basically meeting so many all-male teams. And many of them were also saying that like, no, we're doing games for everyone. But I do think it's really hard to create a product for everyone if you are not representing everyone, at least, I mean, to a certain extent. And, uh, and looking at more female-focused games, there could be different dynamics. For example, not all women are as excited about zero-sum uh, shooter games, but maybe want to see something else. And many women, I think, could identify themselves as gamers if it wasn't the case that they wouldn't see anything that is appealing to them. Some people would argue that, that it's a niche market, but I think it's really hard to say that like 50% of the population, and given how much time uh, women spend on entertainment and uh, social media, that wouldn't be good alternatives for that target group. And talking about male teams building for products for women, I think one of my venture friends, Paulina from Amaki, uh, she wrote about it a couple of weeks ago. And she was using a trendy health and sleep tracker uh, that is marketed towards both men and women. The notification she got one morning was that her temperature is up and she's about to get ill. And uh, she was like, well, I'm just getting my period. <laughs> that sounds like such an interesting article. It would be great if you could share that 
with us so that we can put it on our Notion page where we have some really interesting articles and references for our listeners to go and have a read. Um, that would be really interesting. Yeah. And a bit big shout out listeners, if you have a non-alcoholic beverage business or have a product that's aimed towards female gaming, then uh, you've heard it here us. Yeah, come to me. <laughs> Magda, we're now entering question time, which is when one of our listeners sends in a question for you. And Gabriella has asked, are there any startups in the Nordics which you rejected to invest in and why, but eventually they exceeded your expectations? I mean, short, uh, short answer, uh, yes, many, many times. And I think from an investor perspective, it's really important to keep in mind that like you never know who you're talking with you never know if you know maybe the meeting that you're having with the founder maybe that's the first investor meet that a founder has and maybe he or she won't have amazing answers on everything but it doesn't mean you can rule any people or or the ideas out for for the future uh, because they might change. So yes, uh, there are multiple cases, but one short point about it, everyone will have misses. You will have companies that you invest in that you do for a good reason that don't end up uh, becoming very successful, at least not from a venture perspective, which is a very particular definition. And you will have uh, great companies that you rejected. And maybe that these reasons were right at that time, but yeah, didn't ended up as you think. But from a venture portfolio or venture investment perspective it's more about getting the balance right so you will have enough of these companies that are doing really really well that will make up and a little bit more uh, for the ones that didn't become very successful it also kind of ties into what you said earlier about like being open to the fact that you will be proven wrong or that you may be proven wrong yeah um, and being able to you know have that that willingness and openness to learn. I think most founders are uh, are, are playing with VCs, with VC FOMO, um, hmm. and I think it's uh, it, it's hard to say that that as a VC you never have any FOMO. Uh, of yeah. course, there is a little bit of FOMO in in everyone. Yeah. I like that VC FOMO. It's definitely a thing. (laughs) Um, And I think uh, two more questions from me, Magda. The first one is, are you guys hiring at the moment? We are not hiring at the moment. We just, uh, at least not to my knowledge, um, we just uh, we just added three people to to, to our team, three analysts, uh, which is a new team that we uh, that we expand. Uh, expanded a little bit but uh, it could be the case that we are hiring in the future and any top tips so i have a few top tips and obviously venture is quite it's quite a hard industry to get into uh, because there are a few spots um and there all uh, there isn't always uh, a very structured process we're actually spending a lot of time internally to think about hiring more more diverse talent i think a good way is to to get to know the team in one way or another for example we're hosting events in, in our offices now of course a little bit less in person that that than it's normally but uh, also signing up to our to our newsletter it's a good way to to see what is going on it could also be to get connected to the portfolio or you know just share share your thoughts or 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 why why you would like to apply with with someone from the team some great tips there and how do people get in contact with you magda 
Yeah, it's very easy. I am on most social media, and uh, but prefer uh, email magda at boldeton.com. So uh, if you have any questions or if you are if you're a founder or if you want to get into VC, of course, super keen to 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 hear from hear from you. Great, yes, and massive congratulations for Gabriella for managing to nab a virtual coffee with you. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. We really enjoyed having you. Thank you. It's been great to have you, Magda. Such good insight. And yeah, I'm still like super, super impressed from what you've done. You've been so young in politics, moving into banking, daughter of immigrant parents. Like it's such a journey. So yeah, it was such a pleasure to chat. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Thank you to all our lovely listeners for tuning in. Please do remember to like and follow. And if you fancy asking a question to one of our listeners, please do email us at associatedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at associated underscore pod. Thanks. Bye. Bye.